I got started in real estate was because a couple reasons. One was my mom had just gone through bilateral knee replacements. She was forced out of work for three months and ultimately she had to go back to work because she could not afford to sustain her living off of her savings. I would see her come home in tears because she has so much pain of being on her feet and just having to go through that job. I would say that was my really big why and my driving force as to wanting to change my life. That was Caleb Johnson. So he's the managing principal at Red Sea Capital Group. Today, we really dive into what it means to find the right sponsor in today's market. As we all know, it's very tumultuous out there and things are changing rapidly. So finding the right sponsor to work with is more important than it's ever been. Hope you enjoy the show. The limited partner shares in the potentially outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor and has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. And that is why we're here together. 90% of the millionaires out there built their net worth with real estate. However, 0% of the billionaires are hands-on managing the real estate assets because there simply isn't enough time. My name is Jake Wiley, and for the past 16 years, I've been investing in real estate, and I've learned a thing or two. But the most important lesson is how to leverage the expertise and time of others to maximize your investment potential. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. All right, partners, welcome again. This is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, just to kind of set the time frame, we're recording this episode in late January of 2023, so the markets are relatively tumultuous as we sit here. I'm joined this week by Caleb Johnson. So he is the principal, managing principal of Red Sea Capital Group. Caleb, welcome to the show. Jake, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to being here and yeah, I'm ready to get this thing started. <laughs> let's let's jump right in. You know, I guess to set the stage for my listeners out there, tell us a little bit about you, how you got here and you know, maybe why you think that now is still a great time to invest in real estate. Yeah, that's a good question. A little bit about myself. I started investing when I was 19 years old in real estate and I became an entrepreneur when I was 18. The reason I got started in real estate was because a couple of reasons. One was my mom had just gone through bilateral knee replacements and she was forced out of work for three months. And ultimately she had to go back to work because she could not afford to sustain her living off of her savings. Honestly, Jake, I would see her come home in tears because she has so much pain of being on her feet and just having to go through that job, I would say that was my really big why and my driving force as to wanting to change my life. Because one, I wanted to help her. And at the same time, I didn't want to have to go through that myself down the road. And the other part of that was, you know, kind of like how your intro said, which I love. It was that 90% of millionaires got their millions through real estate. And when I learned that, I thought that was stupid. And I really had to do some more research there. And that's why I got started into real estate. And, you know, my journey started with a fourplex. I lived in one unit, rented out the other three with some interesting tenants that I inherited, hoarder, a drug dealer. And so there were there's some fun stories there, but I invested in residential real estate for about three years. And then I made a pivot to commercial multifamily. And again, kind of, I thought that I would get into the commercial space eventually, maybe after five years of residential, just because I thought I would need to get more experience. I actually learned going to a meetup that you're going to be green regardless of when you start 
if you do want to pursue commercial real estate, because it's two completely different things, comparing it to residential and commercial. And so if you're going to start, might as well start now. And so I took that journey three years ago and we have to date five assets across three states. Well, that's an awesome story. And I think a couple of things that you pointed out in there that I really want to draw out a little bit more too, is that, you know, you saw the struggle that your mom was having, right? And she was having to go trade time for dollars, right? And I'm extrapolating a little bit on your story, but like, I think you saw that there's got to be a better way and to build something that like can then create cash flow. Am I reading that right? You are. Yeah. Yeah. That's right on. A part of real estate too, I think, and having our own business is legacy wealth. If that's going to be my life, I'll pass that down to my children. I want to set the precedence in my family for that. Yeah. And I think I really love that because that's how I feel too. And I think about my kids, I've got four and, you know, we talk about college and we talk about tracks and career tracks. And, you know, it's funny, like at an early age, you know, they've, Every once in a while, they'll talk about like what they want to do when they grow up. And I'm like, you know, if I had my way, you wouldn't have a job, right? Like you'd have assets that paid for yourself. And I wish somebody had told me that when I was really young and that could have started. And then I think that really kind of taking that to another level is the comment that you made about, you know, getting started in commercial is that like, you're going to be green at some point. And there's this tendency and you're probably in a similar boat because I had some interesting small properties myself with, you know, drug dealers. I think we lost some tenants because some bullets, you know, were coming through the walls and in a shootout in the street at one point in time. And, you know, you get into these things because like one, they're relatively cheap and it's something that you can do. You take your stretch your down payment dollars as far as you can go. And sometimes it puts you in some really crappy neighborhoods, but mm -hmm. you got to start. Like if somebody told me, man, like if you're going to get a job, go get into commercial real estate, like whatever, become a broker, figure it out. But like start that early, right? I've taken a long circuitous journey. I've been a CPA, still have my CPA license. I've invested in, you know, resi real estate for over 17 years. Like would have been great if I'd started earlier. So you've had some life experiences that I think put you in the right path. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I've been very blessed to have incredible people in my life, mentors. And so it's, yeah, just a huge blessing. Awesome. Well, I think as you know, you, the listener out there, if you're thinking like, what is the relevance here? What are we talking about today? Like, I really want to get into like in the sponsor, right? And talking a little bit more directly about how to find the right sponsor. Because as we opened up the show, we talked about the tumultuous nature of the market as it is right now. It's late January of 2023. You know, the debt markets are still crazy. Interest rates are still kind of rising, but they're dropping. Like it's, you know, banks are hard to come by. Give me your take on what, you know, passive investors, limited partners should be looking for in a sponsor. And then what are some red flags, some risks that you see for with sponsors that are out there? Because there will be some losers <laughs> in this period in time. Uh, yeah, that's a fair point. And I think a lot of people don't recognize that real estate is cyclical and, you know, you want to make sure that the investment that you make is a savvy one. Part of that you know, whenever you do vet the sponsor there, I think a couple red flags for me would actually be if someone has not had the track record. I think commercial real estate is so lucrative. And because of that, there's so many people that want to get in the game. So you'll have people that are genuine salespeople. And I think honestly, we're all salespeople 
and I'm not downing salespeople. I'm a salesperson, but whenever someone is primarily a salesperson and they're selling you the dream and they don't have the track record, someone can be a really great salesman, but a poor operator and a poor investor. And so I think that is so key for the investor to have a track record before making an investment. And one might think, well, what if I lose this great opportunity, right? They're presenting a 20% IRR or whatever that may be. They can triple my money in three years. I'm going to lose that on this opportunity. Well, there's going to be many opportunities down the road. You know, I'm sure you could go in your inbox now and find 10 passive opportunities that you could invest in. And so being patient, looking for the right operator and the right offering and also the right market. Another point of that. So whenever vetting a sponsor, I think it's so important for a passive investor to kind of get into the weeds. So you have to do your own due diligence and passive investing is passive, except for the front end. Right. When you do have to do your due diligence, one on the operator, the market, if it's one that you're not familiar with, and then the offering and the numbers and the financials and what the operator is actually projecting to occur. So some questions might be, what are your debt requirements or what are your debt expectations? You know, right now we might underwrite with a higher debt coming in, maybe an 8%, but in a, we're going to refinance this in three years and the refinance rate is going to be three. And you might think that was 2019, 2020 interest rate. So maybe three might be a little heavy. So what if you put a five on that? And if that kills the deal, then I would really be cautious about putting my hard-earned capital in that offering and looking at their rent projections, you know, maybe doing your own market analysis and seeing what the comps are and seeing if, you know, they're expecting maybe just something unrealistic in the first couple of years, especially on a larger offering, that would be a red flag to me too. So just making sure there are conservative underwriting vacancy, you know, we've had great rental growth and I'm in Phoenix. So we've had tremendous rental growth. I think it's been 15 to 25% the last two years. That's not sustainable. And if someone's underwriting to those projections two, three years down the road, that's an investment that I would not want my capital in because I don't know what my return would be. And even if it's a safe thing to put my money in. Yeah, I think those are great points, you know, that what are people looking at? And I think one of the things you could probably do and, you know, get your thoughts on this as well is if you're looking at deals, especially now, right, there will be a lot of projections. There's a lot of expectations that go into what's going to make this thing float. Like you mentioned one, which is a refi, right? If there's a refi built into the deal, there's a reason for that. And the reason being is that, you know, to make the numbers pencil or to get the returns, like there needs to be a refinance <laughs> within the time frame. And that's actually a red, it's not necessarily a red flag, but it's something to look out for, right? Because somebody's saying that like, yes, the market is a little wonky right now, but we're expecting that we can refi this at some point down the road for a rate that actually then juices the return. Because if it didn't add value, you know, aside from the fact that maybe there's just a timeline associated with a bridge loan, like if it doesn't add value, they're not going to show it, right? So there's a reason a refinance is going to show up in a projection is because they believe it's going to add value. And the other one is rent growth. And I think you're right. There's been phenomenal rent growth and it's real easy for, you know, to kind of look at a spreadsheet and just kind of see like, okay, last year was this year, you know, like more of the same, right? And you look at those growth and sometimes, you know, like somebody looking at these deals, like you can have sense of like, 
does this make sense, right? Because like you talk about a 25% rent growth, you know, like this year it's a hundred bucks, next year it's $125. Okay, maybe, right? The year after that, like now we're talking about like 160. Like if you project that out five years, I mean, we're talking about more than a doubling of the rent. Like, does that make any sense to you? And like that stuff's coming through right now, right? People are just like, yeah, take the current growth and we'll push it out in the future. You can obviously look at, what I would do is I would just line up several deals right? And just kind of look at projections for several different, even if they're in different markets to get a sense for like, okay, what are people thinking is going to happen down the road? And that can kind of help give you, you know, if everybody's coming up with the same conclusions in certain buckets, insurance, right? Those numbers might make sense. But if you see, you know, significant rent growth or there's a refinance in there, those are questions you should ask. Right. And I agree. And kind of like what you said as well is just being patient. It's okay to sit on your money for six months, depending on your situation, right? Some people have a 1031 or, or other scenarios that they have to play with, but it's okay to be patient. You know, there is going to be another offering down the road that might even be better and more secure than the one that's being presented to you now. Yeah. And I did wish I had a little bit sharper on these numbers, but like I did some analysis not too long ago and talked about like the number of multifamily units in the country and it's over a million, right? So like you think about every one of those is on a three to seven year cycle. So like even taking a conservative approach, right? Like if you said it's every five years, you know, it's 200,000 units that are going to be coming up for sale every year, right? Like you really think that like there's not a deal tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, like it's not quite a thousand units a day, but like there's a lot of transaction, a lot of transacting going on. So like your point is right on, like just be patient. Like there is no, like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And if you're getting pitched that, like you should probably, you don't even need to do the diligence. <laughs> like you can just mm -hmm. move on. Right. That one once in a lifetime opportunity will be snatched up by, you know, those that know what the heck they're doing, you know, long before you see it. So be patient. Great advice. Mm -hmm. What else? Right. What else should we be looking at? Well, another thing that comes to my mind is the market, right? Mm -hmm. Dallas, Phoenix, and, you know, the Florida markets have been on fire. Those are the big three that I keep on seeing, at least. If you start seeing markets, I think some in some markets like flyover states, maybe Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, they aren't as competitive. But whenever you start doing more due diligence and you find that a market has 10,000 people, its population growth has been stagnant, the jobs aren't really there, and the operators trying to sell you this offering, I would really consider that. And then let's say they even bake on the rent, you know, market rent growth that we just discussed, and that would be a huge red flag for me. So knowing the market, and then again, even if those offerings that are being presented to you are in great markets, and that would be a green light. You know, if they're having conservative numbers in Phoenix with a conservative exit cap rate, that's a huge thing right now, especially in Phoenix, where Phoenix is known for its volatility. I believe in 2008, the home value dropped, I want to say 58% in 2008. And so that's a huge decrease. And so if someone's projecting to sell it at an exit cap rate that is not that high compared to what they're buying it at, that's another red flag. So knowing the market that you're getting in, I think is huge with population growth. Yeah. And I mean, that's a great point, right? Like you can do some pretty quick searches on population growth, right? Like there are already some charts out there that talk about markets that are, that have influxes. I mean, and that's what you're looking for. Like if you're thinking about this market, like what builders are a little bit skittish about building right now, like they don't want to be stuck with a bunch of inventory. So that means it's a little bit of a captive market for existing stock. Doesn't mean there's stuff not going up. Like you probably see it everywhere, but like the new permitting, like that's going down. So if you see, if you find a market, even if it's 
off the beaten track, but it's got a good inflow on the population. And again, like that's a Google search. Like you, you can mm-hmm. probably find some good deals because the, you know, like the markets that you talked about, like everybody and their brother knows about it. Right. Like everybody that's just trying to get into this game, like everybody that saw these like 20 to 50 percent value increases over the past two years prior to the, you know, the Fed changing their interest rate policy, like that's where they went. So like competition's hot. Cap rates got so low right now. We're Mm -hmm. getting back to some normal, but I think there's some stuff off the beaten track. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you live in a market and you know there's population growth, like look for people in your market. Right. Like, because if it's not one of these major named, you know, Sunbelt cities, then you might be able to find some great deals like right in your own backyard because, you know, the majority of people aren't looking. Yeah, that's right. And another insight that I think might be helpful is if you live in a market that, let's say, isn't one of those major three or major competitive markets and you hear Amazon's going to be developing or even here in Phoenix, this is a, since we just talked about Phoenix, it's on my mind, but there's, I think they're investing a $44 billion facility in this chip manufacturing company. And so if you are boots on the ground and you hear there's some major development going on where someone or a big company is looking to move in, that is a huge opportunity that you can see. You know, I've heard of people that once they see a Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods in the market, if that restaurant or if that store is down the road, that is huge because they have the capital to really understand what, you know, do all the analysis and going into it much further than you might be able to. And so if they saw value in that location, then maybe that's something to take a second look at. Yeah, that is a great point. You know, as you think about you know, some of these major retailers or chains, if they're popping up and they're developing, especially if they're moving out into like suburban markets, maybe a little bit further away than like you, you're you used to kind of traveling, they've spent a bunch of money. Now, some of that stuff is going to be flow through from the past couple of years. Like they did the analysis and everything was gangbusters, but like there's something there, right? Like you're not having to do it all on your own, right? And there's a plan, which I think is good. And you mentioned Amazon, which I think is was, is interesting because yeah, Amazon from a distribution center has been growing like a weed, but on the flip side, from like the tech perspective, you know, they've been they've announced layoffs. Like I know in Nashville, they just put a full pause on a huge development they were doing, like in in Nashville proper, not necessarily a distribution center. I know they've pulled back on a lot of their distribution centers. So another thing to look out for, which I think I appreciate you kind of bringing this up, is like the tech companies are laying off right now. So if your market has been massive influx, like think Austin, think Miami, where there's been a lot of tech coming in, that's a question you should ask, right? Because like a lot of that growth has been on, you know, under the assumption that they're going to bring, you know, tech growth is going to continue. But now these companies are actually starting to shed workforce, Salesforce. I mean, you name it, Facebook, Amazon, Google, have all announced multi-thousand people layoffs just in the recent past. So like, those are the things that, you know, if you have somebody that's like, oh, you know, this tech growth has been amazing. Like, I, again, that might be a pump the brakes. <laughs> right, right. And on the back end, that might be a good opportunity in three years, right? Mm-hmm. So if there's a big tech facility coming up in a market and now that's put on the pause, I would assume home values, market values drop they decrease. And so in two, three years, when that's kind of been the norm, there might be some more opportunities there to buy property at at a discount. Yeah. That's a great point in part of this discussion already, but like real estate is cyclical, but it's also a long game, right? Especially in a market where there's positive pressure on population growth, it's not going to lose value over the long term. Like we are in at a point in time where there might be some fluctuations. 
know, we might see value drops, but like you got to consider like over the past two years, I mean, in these hot markets, I mean, the values have increased like north of 50% in some of these properties. Like that's not normal. Right. So even if there is a 15, 20% value drop, like it probably gets back to where it should have been. Right. Like it, it, things been more normalized. If you see some drops, like it, your points right on is like, there's probably some value opportunities, especially in high demand areas there will be growth. There will be continued growth. Like the market's going to stabilize and like real wealth has always been made in downturns, right? Like, yes, you can ride the wave up, but the guys that know how to like buy and hold and, you know, like these large players that are sitting on mountains of cash, like they're out there, like snatching up stuff, you know, that's quietly in distress. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's very opportunistic and Sam Zell, he wrote a book that was called, am I being too subtle? And he's a billionaire and, but there's been other books written by, you know, other real estate moguls, but they're opportunists. And he says, you know, if someone asks Sam Zell, Hey, what do you do for work? Or what's your occupation? Well, I'm an opportunist. If I see industrial at a discount and I know values are this, but I can get it for this, then I'm going to invest my capital there. Or if I see, you know, opportunities in the tech space coming online or the energy space and it's at discounts, but I know there's a five-year cycle or I have some other information that I know or I believe the price will go up, then I'm going to bring my capital into that. So it is a very opportunist environment. And so I think, again, to your point, real estate is, I believe it's the safest investment for anyone's capital. And again, wherever your own situation is, but the stock market, you know, I don't want to put too much of my capital into that because there's so many unknowns that I don't have control over. Now, real estate, it's a hard asset. You have depreciation that you can take advantage of. You have appreciation at the same time as depreciation. And Jake, like you said, it's, yeah, it's just a very opportunist space that real estate is. Yeah, I think adding to your list too is scarcity, right? It's like you can never make more land. I mean, you can go up, you can go vertical, and there's only so much you can mm -hmm. do. I agree with all your points. That's why I love real estate. I think one final question for you is, you know, there are a plethora of younger sponsors out there in the marketplace that have good experience and they've been through, you know, past three, four years, but they haven't lived through a cycle, right? So it's very tough. You know, if you're a passive investor and you're looking at a sponsor, it'd be really easy to discount somebody that's you know, probably hasn't been through a cycle before. There are paths through that for sponsors. What should folks be looking for in a sponsor if maybe they haven't been through a cycle themselves? That's a great question. And I actually had that question whenever I was presenting my first offering, which was a smaller property. It was 16 units. Whenever that I was presenting that offering, I had someone on my team that had been through a cycle that saw the value in the offering I was presenting. And I was kind of able to leverage their experience and their knowledge that, hey, this person who has gone through this signs off on it and he sees the value there. And if someone is on the younger side, again, I think there's so many people that want to be in the commercial space because it's so lucrative. So you will have some younger generation in there. And if it's just them again, and they have these lofty hopes of what the offering is going to be, and they don't have someone that's signing off on it that has had the experience, or they can't answer those difficult questions, that's something that I think a passive investor should really consider and just be wary of that.
is spot on. And I think we we alluded to it. And, you know, am I being too subtle here? But like, the point is that like the whole point of being a passive investor is leveraging somebody else's experience and time. And I think that like that extends into the sponsorship world, right? Like you can find people that have that experience and bring them on your team. They could be an advisor, a board member, another investor. There are ways to do that. And as a matter of fact, like I think you should, right? I actually like to see you know, more in, in kind of other people that, that are plugged into these types of investments. Like, you know, when somebody comes to me and they're like, hey, I'm the property manager, I'm the asset manager, I'm the fundraiser, I'm the investor relations. It's like, it's not possible to be great at all of those things, right? Mm -hmm. So finding somebody that, that's willing to bring in the right partners and to kind of lever up what they're capable of doing is spot on. So I think you nailed that. And then I guess maybe the final parting question, is there anything that you think you want to share to kind of make this episode complete? Wow. That's a loaded question. I think it is just turbulent waters in the investing space right now. And we were able to see Again, since I'm in Arizona, it's fresh in my mind, but people could sell, they could acquire and then sell an asset in 18 months and 2X investors capital. We can't expect that to happen. So I would say to investors, you know, there are going to be some return probably decreases. And if someone is still presenting offerings at great returns, and let's say there's not a value add play there because you know, there is going to be opportunities that have great returns out there. But in general, if returns you're expecting to be what they used to be, that is going to change. And so I think that's something to consider. Great points. I close out every episode with gratitude, right? And I want to give you an opportunity to maybe give somebody a public shout out that has given you a leg up along the way, or maybe given you a little bit more than you, you probably deserved on your own. So do you have anybody you'd like to give a little shout out to you? Yeah, I love that. I would say, you know, there's been so many mentors in my life and one individual, his name's Gilbert Moreno, and he's actually a, a residential investor here, but an agent as well here in Phoenix. And he was my first mentor. And so whenever I called him up and I said, hey man, I'll clean your toilets for, you know, for free at two in the morning. If I can come under your wing and you can kind of show me what to do. And so he told me to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad six times and then another book six times. And so he's been a tremendous influence on my life. And now we are in different spaces, but still just such a tremendous help. So yeah, Gilbert Moreno, I appreciate you, brother. Well, Gilbert, I hope you listen to the show. Obviously, kudos to you for giving somebody a chance. Because that's how we all make it, right? Like I think everybody gets their opportunity and either you take it or you don't, but it usually takes somebody you know, with an eye that's willing to, to give you that shot. But Caleb, thank mm -hmm. you so much. It's been a fun conversation. I appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, Jake. And there's some more gratitude for you. It's been a pleasure to be here and I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and I'd actually love for you to contribute to a future episode. If you have a question you'd like answered or a topic or a guest to bring on the show, please email me at jake at thelimitedpartner.com. Now I realize there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around on these shows, so I've created a cheat sheet for you with the top 26 terms that come up most often. Head on over to thelimitedpartner.com forward slash lingo for the list. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time.